The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, and Miles talking about the news that you don't know from the past week. The underreported news with regard to race, justice, and equity, but the news that you should know. And then I sit down with Stephanie Crint, an attorney and expert on prison mail digitization. It is wild out here, y'all. Wait till you hear what's going on. It's nuts. Here we go. Hey family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. My name is Kaya Henderson, and you can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. My name is Miles E. Johnson, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Pharaoh Rapture. And this is DeRay at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So lots of interesting stuff happened this week. There is a new king of England, the UK, Great Britain. I don't know what you call it. Uh, anyway, Charles was... Uh, crowned at a big, lavish coronation. Did anybody watch it, first of all? I saw some clips. I saw that black that black choir singing at that... Honey. That coronation was... <laughs> I was embarrassed for those people. How much do you think they paid them? They had to pay them a lot of money, right? A lot of money. Nothing is worth your soul. <laughs> <laughs> it, that was... I mean, I didn't watch it either. I just saw clips. And... In every clip that I saw, they made sure to show the gospel choir. So we know that there was a gospel choir there. I also saw a meme that was of Camilla being crowned queen consort. And it was, it said, you, I think it said, you're crowned, um, you win queen of playing the long game, which I thought was pretty funny. And she's not queen consort. Remember that uh, now that Charles is king, she's actually queen. Just Queen Camilla? Queen Camilla, yeah, because this was, they were like, uh, this is a take one for the side chicks. The side chicks win. She is now just the queen. The side chicks win. Mm, fascinating. Um, we also got, there's also a new Bridgerton out, Shonda Rhimes, Queen Charlotte, the Black Queen of England. Twitter uh, said, Twitter said, Shonda funny. did it again. Twitter was like, Shonda did I it again. Loved it. Did you? I've watched it, it already. I watched it two times already. <laughs> Don't give it away. Oh Don't give it away. I watched the whole Gosh. series. Yeah, I'm not giving it away, but I watched the whole series two times already. I I was in. Wow. I was into it. I had my little critiques, <laughs> but I was able to suspend my. You know, I'm good at that. <laughs> holding multiple ideas. Did Shonda do it again? <laughs> Did Shonda do the I, thing? So she, oh God, now let's bring it back to that. Yeah, I think Sha, I think Shonda did it. I think why why black people need these kind of monarch fantasies is interesting in in telling a little bit of like 
fantasy Stockholm syndrome coming out in your writing. So I get why. So I don't know why we need that. Like, I'm like, that's not <laughs> I, like if you go too deep into it, it's not empowering. But if you stay just telling this, digesting the story, you're like, oh, I loved it. Good entertainment. I think. I think the thing about it that why it's so important for people is like, you know, we're erased from these histories. And so to see us in like there, you don't see pictures of black people in Victorian times or you don't nobody believes that black people could have been royalty or of the whatever class. And so I think for a lot of young people, like I didn't grow up seeing anything like that. And so I think for a lot of young people, it just shifts what is possible, what could be possible based on what they're seeing on the screen. I guess I just want to know what is, and again, I'm, I'm, I, I may just, I want to know what it's based on. I want to know what it's based on. Who are the the people that, that, that this is based on? Because some of it felt more reclaiming a, like fantasy reclaiming a past that like didn't really it didn't happen but she she yeah. says she says it's fiction she i saw a thing on right. today's show and she says it is historical fiction but it is based on real characters so there was a queen charlotte who was black you've seen the pictures of the lady with the curly hair and a broad nose yeah 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 yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's. but but the story of what happened in the thing which i haven't yet seen but i'm gonna watch tonight i'm yeah. so excited is fictionalized she's super clear about that yeah, we'll, 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 after everybody's watched it, we'll, we'll dig deep. I will say Twitter, the, my, my black Twitter crew literally was like, Shonda did it again. And I'm like, come on, Shonda. Cause Shonda had us wrapped around her fingers with, um, Kerry Washington and that cry. What was that show? Scandal. We was all watching. You couldn't tell me Scandal, Scandal wasn't the best Grey's thing on Anatomy, TV. Anatomy, um, how to get away with murder. I even support you know, some of Shonda's flop eras because I love, I mean, it wasn't really a flop era because it did really well, but I felt like she got a lot of, um, like, flack for, like, Eventing Anna, the Anna Delby story. I didn't know she did that. Yeah, she did the Eventing Anna, and I was like, I love this. Oh, I was hooked on it, but I watched every moment of Eventing Anna. Okay, because I I just remember a lot of people giving it a lot of pushback, and I'm like, well, I I was just being quiet. (laughs) That thing was captivating. Shonda can tell a story. She could tell. Listen, mm. listen. Um, and then there's Uncle Clarence, who's clowning again. It seems like the more they dig into this Harlan Crow story, the more there is. Some people say, where there's smoke, there's fire. We now found out that Harlan paid for Clarence Thomas's great nephew or grand nephew or something's tuition at his private school. Come on, y'all. Like, for real? It is just like the hits keep on coming. You know, what I, I was talking to a friend the other day and they were like, if the Republicans win the presidency, they're going to kick that man off the court for sure. Like if the Republicans win, they will get him off and appoint a 25 year old who didn't go to law school and we will be in hell again. Mm. Um, that is probably right. But but until that time comes and because we even though we have a Democratic president, we still are living in Republican land. They are not going to touch him. Yeah, and there is, you know, this is a reminder too that the that Congress just doesn't have as much power over the court as we anticipated that, like, what is the check and balance? Nobody does. Besides adding more seats to the court. And I think that the Republicans have done a good job of making adding more seats sound like this radical thing. I think the Dems need to mainstream, like, add two more, three more people, 
And then we wrap this thing up. Like, I think that needs to be a legitimate conversation because that really is like the only avenue that we can do that makes the most sense right now, given that, you know, they're not going to subpoena them. They're not going to do anything else to to hold them accountable. And we're just stuck in these reports being like, this is unethical. Everything I can think of has like a curse word in it. (laughs) (laughs) Clarence Thomas is just the biggest, you know, what do the kids say? The One of the biggest ops. I just don't, it, I just do not like him. <laughs> and, and I just, and I always go to like, I, I know the, the, the newest reports that are out, but I always instantly go to Anita Hill and I always instantly think if we had listened to black women mm. the first time, if we listen mm. to them the first time, usually that's how you treat black women is usually really in like uh, it really indicates where your politics are going to go and what's going to happen and where your morals are. And if we just listened, we wouldn't be talking about him, you know, 101 years later. Child. And why do evil people live so long? <laughs> that is wild. That really I'm is like, it. what is going on? What is going on? And he's a terrible justice, right? Like all of my legal friends who have been in front of the court say that this man falls asleep through most of the proceedings. He doesn't actually write, you know, opinions. He's, I mean, and what's most embarrassing, I mean, it's just, it's horrible, but it's even more embarrassing when like, this is a black man who literally was bought off, literally bought off, right? Like, and his wife, ah, okay. Anyway, what else is going on this week? Um, <laughs> catastrophe, sorry, I just can't with it anymore. Catastrophe in New York, Jordan Neely. Um, I feel like I'm not super, I mean, I know what happened, but I'm not super on top of it because I don't live in New York anymore. And so I'm not getting all the news. So friends, what's going on in New York? So Jordan Neely was apparently uh, saying that he was hungry and homeless on the subway, which anybody that's ridden the subway has experienced Happens before. all day, every day. And a white 24, I think he's 24-year-old, a uh, former Marine, put him in a chokehold and for 15 minutes choked him out and he dies while two other white men held him down. And it just is, I mean, if not for social media, none of us would even know that this story happened, but somebody filmed it and... Um, and Eric Adams has all but defended the murder. Uh, the governor of New York, Kathy, I can never say her last name, has has also essentially, go how do you say it? No, I'm good. See, you don't know either. <laughs> Kathy. Kathy has I- defended it too. And <laughs> that's, I don't remember, like, Kathy is what I got. So, <laughs> you know, it's been really an embarrassment. We'll see if the DA pro- uh, presses charges on them, but the guy who killed him released a statement that, um, that essentially says he was, you know, making obscene gestures and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, none of this is justification to kill somebody. That is wild. And I, 15 minutes is such an incredibly long time. And the last thing I'll say, because this is also my news, but I'm really going to talk about Kitty Genovese, um, the story around the bystander effect, is that when you look at the transcript of people telling him that he's going to kill him, it's very clear that he knew he was going to kill him because one of the witnesses says that he poops on himself and if you keep going, he will die. And the guy holding him down is like, nope, that poop is old, da-da-da. And the witness is like, no, 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 my wife is ex-military. Like this pooping on yourself is the precursor to death. And the man holding him down is like, oh no, he's not really squeezing him. It's like, you, this was not a mistake. This wasn't a like, oops. He was not attacking anybody. 
um, you just wanted to kill him. And let's be clear, if Black people went around on the subway killing every white person who made them feel uncomfortable, the subways would be shut down and we'd all be in jail. Mm-hmm. It really just defies like reason and logic that you literally, uh, the man wasn't doing anything. He didn't hit anybody. He didn't, he wasn't menacing anybody. He was just screaming in the subway. And who died and left you in charge and decided to take this man out? And how is it that nobody just knocked him off of the dude? Like the, and, and no charges, zero. Like how, what, when the police come, how do you not charge the people? Somebody is dead. Don't you have to take somebody away? So they do They do actually put them in custody and then they release them really quickly. Miles, what you got on this? Yeah, just really disgusting. Just really, um, you know, I really, I, I think about like homelessness and houselessness a lot. I do think about just as far as like what we can do about it, um, about mental health crises. And when I, I have, when I have my own experiences, maybe... Jesus, thank God. Like before, like four or five years ago, with um, with just like me- like mental health services and like uh, uh, asylums and stuff like that, and therapists and stuff like that. Um, luckily, I was lucid and and grounded enough to navigate that system. And of course, I had a community um, that was helping me navigate it. But I had came so closely to so many people who do not have those communities, to who you kind of knew the trajectory of their lives were going to be either jail or or death. And what I understood was it's so easy to become Jordan. It's so easy to be in these situations. And if we're actually letting people just exterminate people because of discomfort and not look at this is what, this this is indicative of a mental health crisis. This is indicative of what happens when we have systemic oppressions inside of um, uh, one of the richest states in countries in the world. This is indicative of that. But no, this person is this uh, menace that can that can be that can be taken away. And and now not only are are you being taken away, but you're actually being kind of like celebrated around it. I think that we should all be really scared because now as the mental health conversations happening even more, we all know that we all either are dealing with or know somebody who's dealing with mental health. And we know that one of the main motivations underneath homelessness is mental health, you know? So it just disturbed me that other humans were looking at other humans like a pest problem and not like a a, a person crying out for help. It really, it really just kind of shook me to my core because I've seen through with my own eyes how close I am and anybody else who I know is to be in situations like that. The Jordan Neely stuff, we'll see what happens this week. I did want to go back high to the coronation and just say very much switching topics and tone is that every meme of Katy Perry was great. Did you all see the memes <laughs> of Katy Perry? I didn't see that. Only, only thing I saw was um, who's who's who who's the Nigerian singer who sung Keys to the Kingdom? Tiwa. Tiwa. Tiwa, who's the Nigerian? Do you know who Tiwa is, um, um, Auntie Kaya? No, I don't. Not my... Let me expound. Tiwa Savage? Yes. Let me expound. Tiwa Savage? Yes, Tiwa Savage. Okay, yes, I do know who Tiwa Savage is. So Tiwa Savage took her black tail. Yeah. 
You gotta, you, I gotta talk out the, I gotta tighten up my lips and talk out the corner of my mouth all, all grimy to talk about this. So she took her tail up there and not only did she sing for this king, and now let me tell you something. I'm 32. I lived in New York and Atlanta. I've lived in the recession. I've done strange things for change. So I'm not even gonna shame you. I know what it's like to meet your rent paid. I get that part. But you have to have your own inner moral compass. The fact that you sat there, st- stood there, and sung Keys to the Kingdom from Beyonce's Black is King album to this man. Let me tell you something. I've said mm. this many times, and I'm going to say it again because it applies. I don't think that there's a hell, but I think they will make it for Tiwa Savage. She Ooh. needs to reflect. She needs to reflect. She needs to reflect. That was the what, like, absurd, like, I just, surreal. Surreal. Oh my God, why didn't we start with Tiwa Savage? <laughs> she looks great, though. She looks great. I love it. So I let me just, um, since mm. you all did not see the wonderful memes, the first was that um, Katie couldn't find her seat. Because she can't see out of that hat. <laughs> at the coronation. So this is the first <laughs> meme, and it just is so great. Because she legitimately can't find her seat, but her the outfit is so intense. So then she tweets later, found, she tweets, found my seat, guys, don't worry. And then she is dressed uh, in honor of Princess Diana at this coronation, which I think is just epic. And then the last meme That's is that hilarious. she almost falls. And it, the, like she is the, she was the comic relief. Like she just had, she was it. Um, at the mm-hmm. at, mm-hmm. how come how come Megan didn't come? She says that because normal? it was it was the it was no because you know she and Prince Charles are beefing, but she it's the the little boy's birthday. Prince Ar- Archie is that his name? Um, and it was his birthday, and so she stayed behind. And Harry sat in the third row, child. This was not a family reunion. The end of the monarchy is coming, baby. Because even the royalists are struggling and trying to defend this man. And everybody looks really goofy, like those hats and stuff. Like, I, I guess it always looks goofy, but I just think that specifically in modern times, it didn't even look like, oh, what a... I, I think some of some of the fascination with the royals is that it's like a throwback, and it's like, oh, t- you know, time suspends itself, and you're taken back to a time where, you know, royalty was royalty and all the hoopla that goes along with it, but it didn't look or feel like that. It just looks really silly and really but tone part, deaf. And, and Part of it is because nobody likes him, right? Like the Brits still are into the royals as a thing. They are the largest money-making attraction in the UK, but like nobody likes Prince Charles. And so, ugh. Yeah, I think they should just, you know reinvest all of that to the Spice Girls. I think that's a legacy that you can <laughs> actually stand behind. Shush. What did you have for breakfast this right. morning? Spicy, I'm baby. It. Spicy. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, 
great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the factor meals and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken Parmesan. I am a chicken Parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes and it is creamy and amazing. Mm, Yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. So my news is actually about, it comes off the heels of Jordan Neely. So once uh, once the video comes out, people start saying, well, why didn't anybody intervene? Like, why didn't anybody do anything? 15 minutes is a really long time. And it brings up the bystander effect, which is supposedly rooted in research in this idea that when crisis happens, um, when people are around other people, it discourages one individual from taking action because you're around a group of people and everybody's sort of like, well, Kai is going to do it or Miles is going to do it. So like, I don't actually do anything. And the bystander effect comes from the story of the story of Kitty Genovese in, um, 
in March of 1964, she was brutally uh, raped and murdered in New York City. She was young and uh, she was in her 20s. And the New York Times reported that 38 people watched her get killed and do nothing. That's like the short version of the report. And that nobody called the cops and people heard it and people screamed. I mean, they heard the screams. The wild part is that she was actually essentially killed in two waves. So she gets attacked. He leaves, comes back, kills her. And in that time, people did hear the screams or the the noise. And this is, this has always been used as a sign of like urban decay that like, this is the danger of cities that when crisis happens, community actually is really loose. People do not reach out to people. And people said the same thing about the Jordan Neely thing, uh, Jordan, Jordan Neely case. And, and I bring this here because as with many things we've talked about, like the, the word gap, for instance, that quote study that turned out to be a sham, this is also just not rooted in reality. I'm going to read um, the correction that finally appeared in the New York Times much, much later. The correction said, while there was no question that the attack occurred and that some neighbors ignored cries for help, the portrayal of 38 witnesses as fully aware and unresponsive was erroneous. The article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. None saw the attack in its entirety. Only a few had glimpsed parts of it or recognized the cries for help. Many thought they had heard lovers or drunks quarreling. There were two attacks, not three, And afterward, two people did call the police. A 70-year-old woman ventured out and cradled the dying victim in her arms until they arrived. Miss Genovese died on the way to the hospital. So the idea that 38 people watched and did nothing is just untrue. The idea that nobody called the police, untrue. People did call the police. 911 wasn't really the same back then. You know, when they actually did start interviewing people, Kitty was a lesbian and they interviewed her partner, even though it was clear a man killed her, but they were so homophobic. So the bystander effect, which becomes this like scientific thing for people and da 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 da, not rooted in reality. They exploited the death of Kenny Genovese to make this idea that people in urban places don't care about each other, don't engage. And when you look at the Jordan Neely video, before I had seen it, I also was like, why didn't anybody do anything? And then I look at it and I'm like, it was not only one man who killed him. A a man did choke Jordan to death. There were three men. Two people hold him down. They like hold his arms down. People, one person does videotape it. Another person does say, hey, you're killing him. Now, you know, people could have done more. That is true. But the idea that people in cities just do not actually engage... In my experience, is untrue. And I think about the other day I was at the gym and um, and there was an altercation between a guy who seemed to be experiencing some mental health issues and a woman. And they were yelling at each other in the gym. And it was me and another woman who went upstairs like, somebody got to come down and get, get... But every man down there was like, okay, we're going to watch this happen, but nothing is going to happen to this woman. Like, we will, we will watch the screaming and yelling. Like, that'll... You know, it, the yelling is what it is. But there were so many men who were like, when push comes to shove, we got her and none of them knew her. And that has actually been my experience more than not. So I, I just wanted to bring this here because the bystander effect, not rude in reality. And what is interesting about the death of Kitty Kitty Genovese is that it was one of the precursors to the modern day 911. 
that experience was so wild that it created what we understand is now one like a central repository. But again, one of the key parts of Kitty's of Kitty's killing is that people did call the police and they ignored it. They did not come. They did not engage. They were not there. This was a really um, like interesting story. So the the reason why I know about Kitty uh, just weirdly enough was that one day when I was like very young, I was looking up like on Google things that happened on my birthday, historical events. And this happened March 13th on 1964. My birthday is March um, 13th. And that's how I uh, under... That's when I found out about this incident, and I believe the the bystander effect. In fact, I believed in it so much that it would deter me. It kind of uh, affects how you how you move in the how you move in a city, um, how you move in a city, um, how you interact with different people, because that's what the inf- the information that was given. And then also, as I was reading what Deray was sending, I was like, oh, and that also disproportionately colors black people, even though. Who the the you know, it, it 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 changes how you see black people in cities and changes how you think um, how moral and helpful black people are and I think that's something that can't be um that can't be overstated and then also the most disturbing part and I know Deray said it but I just want to like put exclamation points on on it are that the police were called and they were not interested. The police were called and they were not interested at all. And the fact that this whole story has been twisted in order to make people think that everybody just stood around and really it's it, it really is an actual story about the decay and the moral decay of the NYPD and the police, that's just disgusting. That's just disgusting. I really love this because this is one of those myths that I still held in my mind. You know, it was some one of those disturbing things that fueled... Um, uh, ideas of other people's homophobia, other people's, uh, how other people treat, uh, you know, treat people who are different. And with this new information, it just, it just differently shaped how I, how I see that incident forever. Um, so thank you for bringing this through. Yeah. I, me too, Miles. This is, you know, I lived in, in New York. I grew up in New York. And so this was just one of those things that like you, it happened before my, before I was born, but everybody knew what happened to Kitty Genovese and that all these people heard her screaming and heard and saw and da da da. Nobody did anything. And to see the actual like factual details of this. I mean, they, the police didn't even go after the killer. The people knew that it was a black man. They saw the man stabbing her and they told the police and the police chose to focus on her lesbian girlfriend, her lover, her girlfriend, um, and never looked for the man who killed her. He confessed at some other point when he was arrested for some other crime. Like it is, it really is about the moral decay of the police force. It is about the um, bias slant of the media because the New York Times spun this whole thing into you know, literally a cultural phenomenon that empowered police in super weird ways that, yes, created 911, but also just, I mean, it is, it's it's in the fabric of generations of New Yorkers um, who still believe that this thing happened this particular way. So thank you, DeRay, um, for bringing it to the podcast. I will say both of you made me think too about how, and Miles, you, you sparked it in me, this idea that when when science says it, it actually starts to shape our behaviors. 
So like when you hear that the bystander effect is a real thing, when something happens, you're like, oh, well, people just don't like it. Like it disrupts our sense of community in the sense that we grew up with where people say things, you call somebody or you get a da 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 da. That's what I grew up in. I grew up in a community where like when something happened, you might not do something, but you calling somebody, you getting your cousin, you call a grandma. Like that was what, you know, you didn't just watch chaos. You like, you did something. You know, I think about all the instances when I was in school or just being in a city where like, I might not have, I remember, I'll never forget when I taught in New York City, I was going to school in the morning and I used to get to school at 6 a.m. It was like a whole thing. I used to be on the 440, 4.40 a.m. train from Bay Ridge. And this one morning there was a drunk guy on the train. It was like six guys on the train and one woman. One of the guys is drunk and he is spitting at the woman. And he's super drunk. And she is cussing him out. And no, nobody does anything. He doesn't spit on her, but he's spitting at her. And she's like cussing him out. At one point, she picks up her stiletto heels and starts to beat the out of this man. And it was one of those ones, I'll never forget it because all the, the rest of the guys, it was all we were all guys. Everybody's looking at each other like, if he even touches her, it's on. Everybody is like, it's on, but we're not going, she is handling herself with the stiletto boots. So we just go, you know, he's drunk. So he barely, you know, he's wobbling already. But there wasn't even a question of like whether people would intervene if he actually hit her in this moment. And like, that is what I am used to, this sort of community of like, okay, we not, you know, we won't get in the middle of everything. We're not unnecessarily jumping right. in, but, but if it goes down, we got yeah. it. Yeah. And I also think you can't like, a, a lot of these situations are unreal situations, you know? Um, not like not unreal, then they didn't happen. But I think that being in situ, like uh, 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 just just a a little thing like um, across the street a couple of a few months ago, um, not even a few, like maybe a couple of months ago, there was a huge fire in one of the apartment buildings, and we witnessed it and stuff. And we call <laughs> we called the fire, we you know call the fire department, um, called nine one one, and we got help. But and even in that moment it was so kind of like scary and you don't, and it's almost like surreal. It was, um, it was very late and we were like in bed and we smelled smoke. It was just one of those things. So I guess what I'm trying to connect is that when you're in a situation and you're hearing somebody, um, be harmed like that, like when I think about Kitty's situation, when you see somebody being harmed and stuff, I think that we can't, we, we have to, give people tools of, of what to do, though, also. Like, I, I, I do still believe that. I still believe that we need to give people tools of what to do in those situations so they become, like, melted into their basic instincts because that's all you really have. Um, Just, like, since I was, you know, four, fire, police department, like, you know, or, excuse me, fire. Stop, uh, fire you know what I mean? Like, these are the things that I just connect, even if, like, I'm, I'm going haywire. So I do think we need more help in those situations, because I think in certain environments, specifically in a place like New York City, chill, we do run into some things where you're like, now what does one do <laughs> in this moment? In this moment, and you know, and they're and they're and they're and they're so strange. And I can only imagine just to bridge it back to Jordan, um, Jordan Neely. I can only imagine how surreal it feels because if you're seeing four men do this and. They're not like it, and and you want to stop it, but you don't. But you don't know what to do, and you're like, "Are you like?" I could just only imagine all the things that are like happening in one's head that you just need those basic like. This is what you do in these moments. This is what this is what happens when do we when do you sacrifice like specifically something like a choking? It's not like somebody's 
stabbing somebody. So it's like, when do you say that's enough, you know? Or do you just stop it from ever happening? Like, it's, it, I, I, I do have a lot of empathy for the people who are surrounding, uh, surrounding it because I think it's really easy to say what you would do when you're not on the train, you know? Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. My news is about uh, Dr. Jeffrey Hinton, who is known as the godfather of AI. He actually created the technology that became the intellectual foundation for many of the artificial intelligence systems that are in use today. Um, Dr. Hinton quit his job at Google because he felt the need to speak out freely and warn society about the dangers of artificial intelligence. Now, as you know, just in the last few months, right, we're all, you know, super excited about chat GPT and all of the things that it can do. And um, Lenza, is that the thing? Everybody was doing their artificial intelligence photos online. And, and, and there are so many things that artificial intelligence powers every day, like Siri or Bing or whatever. You use your um, uh, Alexa, all of the things. Um, artificial intelligence is permeating and saturating our lives in ways that we don't even realize. And Dr. Hinton was like, listen, I built this thing, and so I'm about to tell y'all that um, it is dangerous, and we are basically um, hurtling towards the world that Hollywood has has depicted um, over and over again, where the computers get smarter than us and ultimately take us out. Um, and so it's fascinating to see this man whose entire life work, um, he, he founded the... Basically, what he founded are neural networks, which are how computers take data, eat it up, and then analyze it to make sense of it. And what he believed a long time ago was maybe the computers would get smarter than us like 50 years from now or 100 years from now or whatever. But when you look at how quickly this te these technologies are evolving, he's actually worried that maybe in 10 years we'll be in a completely different place. And part of the thing that has um, exacerbated this is the fact that like previously people were being pretty responsible in terms of how they developed their technologies. But um, basically what's happening is uh, Google and Microsoft are competing and racing to develop faster and faster AI and to beat each other out. And there's no, you know, this is capitalism at its best, right? There is nothing to stop the race for cash. And because of the way the technology is, um, you don't know, unlike the sort of nuclear world, you know who is developing what nuclear capabilities. You don't know if countries are developing this capability because you can't see you can't see it the way you can see other things and so the real worry is that ultimately 
You won't know what is true and what is not true. Um, there's a worry that jobs will be eliminated. Most of the sort of, um, they call, they refer to them in the article as drudge jobs, jobs that do repetitive things over and over will be eliminated. And so we'll have a jobs crisis. Um, and worst of all, that um, these tools can be used in war. And this idea of these robot killing, uh, robot killing robots, robots that kill people and things um, that can actually develop the capacity um, more and more quickly are the things that Dr. Hinton is warning about. Dr. Hinton seems to be a principled kind of dude because he was working at Carnegie Mellon University at one point and quit his job there and moved to Canada because most of the technological research funding was coming out of the Pentagon. So the Department of Defense has fueled a lot of the research. And Dr. Hinton was like, I'm not down with my research being used to create machines of war and that kind of thing. So he hopped out of Carnegie Mellon, moved to Canada and continued his work. And uh, continuing that moral compass miles, right? Like at some point you just got to have your own. This dude quit. Google, where he's worked for a decade to say, this is not okay. We need to create a worldwide consortium of scientists who can actually create some accountability. We need a moratorium on how quickly this technology is developing. And I think it is really interesting. I think we we think the AI is cool and we think, oh my gosh, there are so many amazing things that can happen. But um when you put this stuff in the hands of bad people, there's also really, really bad stuff that can happen. And I don't think that we appropriately appreciate the role that technology can play in making the world an unsafer place, a less stable place. And so I brought this to the podcast because I feel like everybody's talking about chat GPT. And I thought it was courageous, a courageous leadership move for Dr. Hinton to basically eschew his life's work to warn us about the dangers of this emerging technology. This was really fat. This was really fascinating. I love this. Um, I think the one thing when I read articles like this specifically, like with this like kind of like AI fear bubble that we've like are in, is that the core and the base of it is human greed, evil. Um, and I think the thing about the Hollywood AI is that often the technology becomes, you know, it's the fantasy that the, the the that the technology becomes sentient, does their own thing, and comes and kills us. And it's and 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 oh, we just we were we were just friendly scientists in the lab, and it just happens. It's like no, you have people who have terroristic evil minds who are using technology to do terroristic evil things. So in a weird odd way, for me that calms me because then we're dealing with the same thing we've always been dealing with there's also you know i'm a pop culture you know just library in here this is the episode of black miracle metalhead that actually it was pretty it was a if i can remember correctly like it was a pretty like one of the more popular episodes of black mirror it's it's so scary but it's exactly what this is talking about and that's when i first thought about this ai technology because it's literally it's called metalhead and it's about this dog looking robot that you've actually that we've actually seen and it has um weapons on it and it's basically terrorizing this um this this uh this this person inside of this like building for 30 minutes because that's what entertainment is <laughs> but like to like basically chasing and terrorizing this person and 
I think that that actually grounds it a little bit more. And again, there was somebody who programmed this thing to do this to do this. There's somebody whose mission it was to uh, or or intention to do that. And I think it's in, for for me when I'm when I'm hearing all this stuff. It's important for us to stay grounded in the fact that it's the humans' proclivity for evil that and 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 for and for terror that is always going to be the problem. And we can't just hyper focus on the AI, and I think that will be, like, the misstep as we're actually addressing this in the real world. Like, we 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 still have the same problem, just different software update. The only thing I'll add is that, you know, I don't know if you remember when the Black woman got fired from Google on the AI team for calling out oh, yeah. the, the transparency issues and the language models and all that stuff. And what frustrates me about this is, like, yes, he's right, and yes, this is principled, but the one white man says it, and everybody's like, whoo, we got to look at the ethics. 200 Black people signed that letter. And it still was, and, and, and the content of the letter wasn't even what made the news. The news was that she got, that one person got fired was really the headline. And like, that should have been the news. I mean, that was, that was equally as important as 200 people, who, 200 Black people, Black and AI, who, find, who signed a letter being like, y'all, this ain't right. You know what I mean? And another, just another reminder that Black people called it and said, y'all, this is leading down a dangerous path. We are working on it. We see it. One white man does it. And the story is, oh my goodness, he now doesn't believe. Not one Ooh. white, like it's laundry. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, DeRay, you are so right. Thank you for bringing that up. I was just, I just, re- I just Googled it. And Timnit Gebru is her name. And I think, I, I think we covered her. I think I think we covered yeah, yeah. this on the podcast. And so thank you for now I feel all convicted. Like, damn, Kaya, why you bring the article when the white man did? but but we did cover it. <laughs> but we did cover it. We did cover it in 2018. I'm gonna go back through the archives and find it for sure. Um, but yes, in fact, she was the co-lead the technical co-lead of Google's ethical artificial intelligence team. And she had, she wrote a paper focusing on the ethical problems involving the kind of artificial intelligence systems used to understand human language, including the ones that power Google search engines. The, the only thing that clearly Dr. Hinton learned from that because he quit before he said, look out. Right. Um, But shout out to Timnet Gebru who, Sounded the alarm first. Good golly. Mm. Yeah. And it also, it's, it's also, it's an interesting race story, right? Because I think across industries, what I've noticed is that when Black people complain, we are just seen as, because, and, and it's weird because we are often like the, the moral, tra- anything morally good that's happened in America specifically yeah, anything that's morally good, usually Black people are somewhere in the base of starting those movements. So when we do yell and say something is wrong, we're right, everybody's better for it. But I also think that in a weird racial stereotypical way, we kind of get um, painted as just overdramatic or um, or oh, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Whereas white men specifically older white men, are seen as stable, they're seen as um, centered. So if he's running, then, oh my goodness, it's really time to run. Whereas if, you know, 
200 black people are running, oh, they always running from something. They're so dramatic. They're always, they, 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 they are always making um, mountains out of molehills. And I think this is like a really interesting example of that. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Ending this in a short and sweet, but um, b- bright note, you know, uh, one of one of one of my most uh, just just like north stars of how to live a life and how to um, leave this earth with leaving a having a great legacy. Toni Morrison has a new exhibit at Princeton University. It's called Sites of Memory. The exhibit it, um, has uh, different writings, different art- articles of, um, of of personal items, and uh, and, it's, and and from what I've been told, I'm 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 planning a trip to go there so I can visit before it, before it's done. But what I've been told, it's a really beautiful honoring of Toni Morrison's life. Um, it's interesting. I don't know if this if if this worry. It's just me and paranoia around the intelligence, the intelligence of 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 people, or maybe just me being a little bit of a um r- romantic about uh the past and nostalgia. I've, I know there's like an actual word for people who are overly romantic in the in nostalgic about the past, but um even though Toni Morrison is obviously a giant in in the literary community, some something about me gets scared that we that some of her books and her her offerings are going to get lost. Um, I think I get scared about that with Black women writers in general when I think about um, Bell Hooks and Toni Morrison and the other Black writers that have shaped me and who I love and, and, and revere is that uh, uh, everything's going to go so quickly and people are going to want such escapist content that things that Toni Morrison dedicated her life to won't necessarily be... Um, Honored and and, and and remembered in the in the mainstream in in, in years to come. Uh, even when I think about one of the things that I thought about was even like Maya Angelou. 
<laughs> which is like an odd thing to, I don't know, it's an odd thing to maybe think about, but it kind of feels like she passed away. And of course, she's still discussed and every now and then somebody might use her voice as a meme. And, and it just, I don't know, it just feels like when I was growing up, there was, uh, there was a capacity for a Black woman writer to be a rock star. And I just think that I, I, some, something about it, it not being a part of the mainstream uh, culture anymore scares me. And I think about Oprah's book club and Tony Morrison being on those things. I, I, I just, I get a little fearful. So anywho, one of the reasons why I love this exhibit is because I love that even though she's she's died um, a few years ago now, there are still efforts post her um, po- uh, post her death to keep on our um, keep on honoring her, keeping her legacy and her memory in the public um, imagination. And I think that when it comes to black women, black queer writers and artists, specifically ones who did not necessarily uh, do the the mainstream things or who had other types of careers, I think it's really important no matter how giant or mammoth you think this person is. I think that as time goes, that that person's legacy can continue to uh, uh, be reduced specifically the more, you know, I'm sounding like such an old, old auntie, but as, 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 as the, as the entertainment, as the entertainment in our diets and what in our appetite for things get a little bit to me more fast food like, and we just like things that are just more and more low brow and quicker. It just gets me scared about uh, where people's legacies will be who dedicate their life to the expansion of consciousness and the raising of consciousness. And um, yeah, yeah, go go visit and and and, and do more as many things as you can in these black women and artists' uh, honor in, in your own communities. That's what I've been thinking about doing too. Thanks for bringing us, Miles. I, um, I thought it was interesting just because there were um, snippets of Toni Morrison's life that came out um, from her writing process to the fire at her at her home that I just didn't know about, and so it was it was nice to sort of dig into her inner life um, in a little bit of a different way. And I'm excited to go see the exhibit as well. I think um, the point that you bring up about preservation of what I would call the classics for uh, classics of Black literature or Black art, it is it's really important. And shout out to um, the professor Amber, now I can't remember her last name. Let me look for it. Um, oh, sorry. Autumn Womack, who is an associate professor of English and African American studies at Princeton, who curated the, the exhibit. And I think this is the importance of teachers and professors and universities and schools, right? The, the way that I learned about the bluest eye or the the first time that I read Toni Morrison, it was because I had an English teacher who introduced me to it. And the power that teachers have to expose kids to this kind of stuff, um, even in a fast food, commodified sort of, you know, social environment, I think is really an underappreciated part of the teaching profession. Of course, I'm going here because this is who I am and who I've been. Um, But I I think it's important. I mean, in the work that I do today at Reconstruction, like we, we have worked on what we call the Black canon. What are the books that we think all Black kids should read before they graduate from high school? And 
we have to be our own storytellers. We have to be our own archivists. We have to pass on these traditions to our young people so that um, they can TikTok all they want to, but you're going to read a little Toni Morrison up in this house. That's just how it is. And so shout out to the teachers who are determined, whether it's in the curriculum or not. Shout out to um, the advances in what is termed culturally relevant curriculum, where um, the research shows that when kids see themselves, their community, their experiences in the things that they're learning, academic outcomes improve, engagement improves, leadership improves, all kinds of self-identity improves. Um, shout out to the people who are pushing those boundaries in the education space. Shout out to our museum curators, um, the number of of blacks in the museum movement is at an all-time high. And so I think this just sort of goes, shout out to us as a podcast for bringing the things to the people that we think are important for our people to know. Storytelling is our birthright. And so telling our own stories is part, one of the most important things that we can do for the culture. So shout out to Tony Morrison. This made me look up some Toni Morrison quotes that I hadn't seen before, and I will just share the one that I was like, why haven't I seen this before? Uh, in, in an interview, she said, uh, I trust the reader. I think readers have been so mishandled. In either schools or the public world, they've almost forgotten how much they know. Readers know a lot, but they don't trust what they know because they think there's an A-plus or a test somewhere. They've forgotten how to just go in. And that's one of the things that I've just like always like. You're like, Tony, Tony just got words. She was like the first person I read where I was like, oh, I get, I get how a story can be lyrical, not just good, not just interesting. But I remember reading Beloved and getting to the last page. And I was like, you did that. That was a, like, I felt the lilt and the tilt and the tug and the pull of the story itself. And I'm like, not everybody can do that. That was, and I read Tony before I was a good reader the first time, but I still got something out of it. And it was cool to come back to Tony Morrison once I had the tools to get more out of it. And every time, like, there's always something hidden in uh, in a Tony story. So thanks for bringing her to the pod. Absolutely love that. And just, just to reiterate, Toni Morrison is a Black literary, just is a literary mammoth, like as far as just literary, like, goes. Go. So it's, it, it, the idea that I'm sparking is like when I'm thinking about June Jordan, Pat Parker, like there are kids who I've spoken, not, they're not kids. I'm 32, they're 20, 23, 24, 25, like right around my age, just maybe younger. Um, but people who do not know who Joe Jordan is, who do not know who Pat Parker is, Exus Hemphill, Marlon Briggs, like, to me, these people who are, who just shaped my consciousness in were just Black uh, titans. And it, it, I think it's just so important, it's so on my heart that people know that these people's work exists. And I think that if we're, if we're losing recipes when it comes to, like, Maya Angelou, or, like, if that if she's be, uh, starting to be a part of the, the shadows of yesterday's culture, then I can only imagine what it, what's going to happen to these people who um, didn't have a, a type of, like, mainstream writing success, but whose work are critical to how Black people um, uh, think and engage with words. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come.
This week, we welcome Stephanie Krent of the Knight Institute on the pod to talk about prison mail digitization, surveillance, and a recent lawsuit that was brought by free speech organizations. Now, the topic's come up a few times on the pod, and we know that physical mail is important. It's a lifeline. It's a way for people to stay connected to people in their homes and their families who are not incarcerated. We know that digital copies are not a legitimate substitute, but we've never had an expert on. So here we go with Stephanie. You're going to learn stuff. I learned a ton. Now you know. Boom. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I have a million questions. I'm super pumped to talk to you. Uh, But before I ask those questions, can you tell us how you got into this work? Did you always care about privacy issues? Was Was it like a thing that happened and you were like, jails and prisons or... Did you read an essay and you're like, this is crazy. This is going to be my life's work. Like, what was the thing that called you to this work? Yeah, for me, it was uh, really a function of finding the organization I currently work for, which is uh, the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. And uh, the mission of that organization is to defend freedom of speech and of the press in the digital age. And one thing I, you know, when I was doing my job search a few years ago, really admired and kind of was drawn to the Knight Institute was that so many times we think about privacy and free speech, we often think about them as kind of rights for the most privileged uh, and kind of rights that can help entrench power for the most powerful. But the Knight Institute has done a lot of work really trying to make sure that those protections also apply to the least privileged. And so that's why I wanted to work there and kind of take on privacy and free speech really for all um, and to focus on how digital surveillance can impact marginalized communities most. Um, so that's what kind of drew me to this area. And, and this case is kind of a perfect example of the issues that we've been focused on over the past couple of years. Boom. Now, I got to you because of your work and writings about uh, the digitization of mail and the phasing out of physical mail in jails and prisons. I guess we're in both at this point. Yeah, um, yeah. Can you help us understand what's going on? Like for people who have never heard of this, I've heard of MailGuard a little bit, but you're the first expert that I'm talking to. I did have a chance. I'm on the Council on Criminal Justice. I talked to Colleen Colette, who, uh, who runs the Bureau of Prisons. We run a panel together. And I was like, come on, why are y'all banning mail? And she was like, Deray, you know, she just got there. And she was like, you know, she was like, she was open to exploring it. She she was like, the people here had told me that people are mailing in contraband. Um, and you're the first expert. So I am pumped to talk to you. So like, lead us into it. We're, I'm, I'm on the Stephanie Trust train today. Good. Uh, well, I, I hope I don't let you down on that train. Um, but a little bit of background about how this technology works. So essentially, when a jail or a prison, as you say, Um, does mail digitization, what that really means is that it has a policy banning all physical mail. means that no mail at all is getting into the facility. Instead, mail has to be sent off-site, often to a private for-profit contractor. And off-site, that mail gets scanned into a digital copy that could last indefinitely. And then the original is destroyed. It's shredded. It can never be seen again by the recipient or by the sender who originally wrote the mail. Two major problems with mail digitization that we focused on in our advocacy work and in a lawsuit we recently filed in California. The first is that by losing physical mail, 
You're depriving people of meaningful communication. You're hampering connection between incarcerated people and their loved ones. Also, their educators, their religious leaders, their support systems, their ability to access post-release programming. The second issue is that by scanning and storing these digital copies of mail, you're enabling unprecedented surveillance of people who have ties to the justice system because you're storing their letters and allowing law enforcement to read and search through their mail, you know, typically at any time and for any reason, which makes this a huge risk to the privacy rights of people who are unincarcerated as well as people who are incarcerated. So the idea that this is like a for-profit money scheme obviously resonates with me. But what do the proponents say? Like when they're like, we need to digitize it, they are definitely saying something that is not, we're just trying to scam people. What is that? That's right. So the justification we've seen most often is that drugs are getting in through the mail and that to deal with the drug problem behind bars, you need to stamp out mail, prevent it as a vector for getting contraband into facilities. The major problem with that argument is twofold. First is that even under systems that allow physical mail, it's being searched. It can be searched, you know, by doing physical inspections. It can be searched through x-ray scans. It can be searched through drug-sniffing dogs. So it's not the case that it's kind of a free-for-all and mail can just get in regardless of what it contains. But the second problem with that argument, and one that I think is more significant, Uh, is that there's really no evidence that mail is a significant vector for drugs, right? Most of what we've seen in public reporting and in public testimony is that staff are primarily responsible for getting drugs into facilities. That's kind of borne out by the data because in states that have adopted mail digitization, what you actually see is that drug use does not go down behind bars. In fact, it often goes up. So Uh, Pennsylvania adopted mail digitization in 2018, and a new reporting just came out, I think, last week that said at this point, the drug test positivity rate has more than doubled since that time. So there's just no evidence that mail digitization can do what people think it's going to do. Where did this come from? Was it like, uh, was it Alec? Was it like somebody wrote an essay and people were like, we need to ban all the mail? Was it a company's lobbyist? Like, you know, I first heard about this when Trump did it at the federal level, like did the pilot. I didn't know anything about Pennsylvania actually until you just said that. So, or like, I mean, you have written a million things, but until you, I didn't know that this was like not just the Trump moment. Where did it come from? So Pennsylvania in 2018 was the first state to adopt this on a statewide basis. Uh, My understanding is that mail digitization and scanning programs had been in the works at at smaller facilities, kind of county level facilities. Um, But similar to you, Dre, I first heard of this also when the Federal Bureau of Prisons was piloting a program. I should mention that program has been on pause. Oh, really? Um, It's on pause? Yeah. It, it was paused. Um, it lasted, I think, 2020 to mid to late 2021. It's okay. been on pause since. Not to say that they won't try to get funding to run another pilot program to expand it. Um, but that was the first time I got really interested in this area, in part because uh, what happens at the federal level is such a signal to states for what states should do, to counties for what counties to do, that the threat of adopting mail digitization at the federal level, I think, was 
and is remains huge. Now, is there one vendor that is like the big player in the space? Is it two? Is it or is it the normal suspects? Is it JPay? And this is like a derivative of JPay. Like, what's the what's the landscape look like? JPay does do mail digitization, uh, and other vendors do too. But the the vendor that is kind of most known for this technology um, that had the contract in Pennsylvania, that had the contract at the federal level. And that now has the contract in San Mateo County, where our lawsuit is focused, is Smart Communications. Uh, and Smart Communications is a vendor based in Florida that you know focuses on all sorts of telecommunications, but especially mail digitization. Uh, and so it's it's a big player and a big threat in this space. And do we know any? Are they are they like a completely new vendor? Like, what do we know about them? I couldn't tell you when they were founded. I believe that they are less well-established than, you know, JPay, Securus, vendors like that. Um, But one thing we know is that they have really marketed themselves based on their ability to scan mail, based on their ability to store mail and to create searchable files for mail so that law enforcement can search through it, often using keyword searches. We also know that they pledge to store mail for law enforcement in contracts often for up to seven years, not after the mail is sent, but after the person receiving it has been released from jail or prison. So that could what? Be, that's, it could be years and years longer, and it could be more than double or triple the total amount of time someone was incarcerated. Um, and what we know is that that may not be the outer limit. Uh, so a few years ago, the CEO gave an interview saying, actually, we've never deleted any records. We keep it all for investigators at any time. Shut up. And so the risk to privacy is so dramatic because if you want to send a letter through smart communications, you have to accept that that piece of mail might live on with law enforcement forever. That is wild. Now, what's the price? Do we know anything about the pricing? Like, is this, do they make it? Uh, really low cost and then lock states into these 20-year contracts. So it, it looks like it's not a lot, but it is a lot. Or is it, it? does it just straight up cost a lot of money? Does smart communications also sell the tablets or just the software? Like help us understand the, the um, capitalist ecosystem mm-hmm. around this. The economics are really variable. So in some states, in some contracts, the corrections facility pays smart communications to provide its services. Um, I think Pennsylvania is one of those. In other places, smart communications will come in and say, we're going to do everything for free. We're going to give you these tablets. We're going to give you the software you can access. It's all going to be at zero cost to the facility. And the reason they do that is that through other services they can provide, like video visitation, email messaging, uh, you know, videos and music that people can stream on the tablets, they will in many instances, receive money from that. So they can charge, you know, a dollar to include a photograph on an email message. They can charge, you know, 25 cents per minute for a video visit. Um, so that's how they make their money through the families and the incarcerated people themselves. In other counties, we see a version of that, but they think it's such a good value proposition for them that they will actually give kind of kickbacks to the correctional facility itself, or they'll offer... Um, the appeal, I think, reported last year that smart communications in many contracts offered free rooms on what they called like a technology training cruise. Uh, so it's not like a, a cruise. cruise. It's like a cruise that they were offering to people. Shut um, up. 
through the guise of saying it was training. Um, so that's the economics, which is trying to make it as easy as possible, as financially feasible as possible to get in the door at these facilities because they know that making money from communicate from communities, excuse me, who are you know dealing with incarceration is so lucrative to them. And I think one of the issues too is that because this is such a valuable business model, they are the ones who are telling corrections leaders, you know, you need to protect your mail, you need better solutions because this is how contraband is getting in. And so it can feed into this idea that really has, I think, been publicly debunked that mail is really a threat to security in prisons and jails because it is not. Now, is this, um, do we know if this is being considered somewhere else right now? Or is this sort of, it's just in Pennsylvania, it's on pause in the and the federal government, or is it on the horizon somewhere that we all need to pay attention to? This is a growing threat. So Prison Policy Initiative did a study that they released, I believe, last year, showing that mail digitization or some form of it, which might look as simple as a facility just directly photocopying mail without the use of a contractor, is, I think, in place in about 14 states at this point. Uh, And that number is growing because more and more facilities see other facilities adopting it, Um, And that's part of why we wanted to file this lawsuit, because we wanted to make facilities across the country really second guess what they're doing when they're implementing mail digitization. It isn't a simple and cheap fix. It's incredibly damaging to the families that are involved. Uh, And I think corrections facilities don't necessarily recognize that at the outset. As well. Can you tell me, um, so this is all wild. (laughs) I would love to know, like, what in your research, as somebody who both of us sort of got to it from the federal government making an announcement, what surprised, what has surprised you as you, as you've gone through the advocacy around this? Is there any part of it where you like, well, I knew it was bad, but whew, this even, this even surprised me. You know, one of the things that surprised me um, was actually in talking with some of our clients about what it's like to live in a facility that adopted mail digitization. Because, you know, before we had those conversations, I had, like you, read a lot about what this looks like and how people react to it. I had known that people say, you know, I don't want to send my child's drawings anymore. I'm uncomfortable with photographs being sent because they could live on. Um, But I, I wasn't sure how many people would actually make that decision because it is such a hugely personal and kind of costly decision to say you're going to cut yourself off from mail, which has traditionally been a cheap, relatively private, and very reliable method of communication throughout incarceration. Uh, But in talking to our clients, many of them had decided to tell their families to stop sending mail. Many of our non-incarcerated clients eventually made the decision to stop sending mail And that was a real wake-up call to me to see how damaging, not just it is in theory, but how it really feels, Um, that it feels so terrible that people make the decision to stop communicating at all, which is, you know, from the perspective of how you support people who are incarcerated, just the absolute worst outcome. That makes sense. That makes sense. What would you say to people who are like, you know, if this just stops a little bit of contraband coming in, it's worth it? I would tell those people to think about the costs and benefits, right? Because the costs here are really great. 
there is evidence that shows that increased communication with loved ones and community on the outside supports all kinds of really good post-release outcomes that everyone wants to support. There's evidence that mail in particular is really effective at doing that because it can allow people to kind of think, reflect, go deeper before they respond. And in that way, it creates a kind of deeper emotional bond and connection with the outside world. Beyond that, there are all sorts of reasons why mail is just crucial for people incarcerated because it is often cheaper, because it's easier for you know, organizations like our plaintiff, ABO Comics, to stay in touch through mail rather than individual phone calls. So the loss is really great. On the other side of the ledger, it's true that prisons and jails need to protect the people inside them, you know, from the threat that rampant drug use can pose. But on that front, I'd say, let's look at the other alternatives, right? Let's look at the kind of proven effects that increased staff security would have the effects that using other forms of drug interception, like drug sniffing dogs, like x-ray scanners. Let's look at the effects that better health care, right? Physical, mental health care, addiction treatment, that those would have on reducing drug use within facilities. So I think you can accomplish these goals at once, but male digitization actually accomplishes neither. And that's why it's so problematic. Um, now, uh, you know, one of the things that I always find interesting as an advocate myself is when you're talking to policymakers or legislators about this, what comes up? Is it, are they repeating the tried and true things? Do you find that they don't even know they're sitting in prison and jail? Like what is, what are you dealing with as you do the advocacy around this? You know, in New York City, I think we've been really lucky for two reasons. First is that there have been advocates working in this space, you know, for longer than I have, who have really focused on the rights of people incarcerated throughout the city. You also have lawmakers who have been very keyed in. So, you know, I testified before city council last fall when the New York City uh, Department of Corrections was trying to propose adopting male digitization. And I was really impressed by the questioning that council members asked, by the way they reacted to comments, uh, and the direct questions they were asking the DOC, because they were really keyed in. Um, I and many other activists were also involved at the Board of Corrections level, which is kind of the supervisory entity over the DOC. Um, and there, the reaction was more mixed, but Advocates really pressed and pressed on these issues, explained why it was so damaging, why it wouldn't serve the city's goals. And, you know, last month, the county, the city, excuse me, decided not to go forward with mail digitization. So it shows that the more you talk about this, the more you explain it over and over, you know, people do listen. Is there any hope with Pennsylvania? Like, given the report that just came out, that's like, hey, not doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm less in the activism in Pennsylvania right now, but three amazing organizations, um, the Abolition Law Center, Amistad Legal Project, and the ACLU of Pennsylvania were all involved right away in 2018. They challenged male digitization, not as a whole, but they challenged it um with respect to legal mail. So at that time, Pennsylvania was trying to adopt this for legal mail too, which is dangerous for a whole host of other reasons. And since that time, local activists have really been trying to 
kind of bang the floor to talk about the fact that the drug rates were not going down. I believe that contract is extended through towards the end of this year, I think this fall. Um, so there is an opportunity for Pennsylvania legislators to make a different choice. And certainly the facts on the ground would support that. Boom. Well, we covered a lot. What else should we know about as we close out? Well, I, I will talk a little bit about some of the other work that I do. But one thing that I think is so exciting about the work that you know we do around male digitization and the lawsuit we filed is that we're working with other organizations who similarly you know do a whole host of other work. So in the case we filed recently, the Knight Institute is working with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which has really been at the forefront of digital issues and has been speaking out against male digitization as a form of digital surveillance for many years now. Um, we're also working with the Social Justice Legal Foundation, which is an organization that really focuses on civil rights for marginalized communities, especially around the carceral system. And through them, we've been working with local activists, especially Silicon Valley Debug, which is really a kind of a boots on the ground advocacy organization that's based in San Mateo and in the Bay Area. Um, so working with these different organizations has kind of made me appreciate just how overlapping these circles of interests are, um, that you can find really close allies, you know, public defender organizations as well, um, who all come to this issue through a different lens, but see it for the threat it really is. Um, so that's, that's kind of a high level answer to thinking about all the different ways that this pokes up in um, different sorts of organizations. But for me in particular, um, so I do, you know, work in this space. I'm also involved in some of our work protecting journalists from spyware, some of our work protecting travelers from very intrusive electronic device searches at the border. Those are kind of the primary uh, areas I focus on. Now, the two questions we ask everybody, the first is, what do you say to people whose hope is challenged in moments like this? People who are like, they read your articles, read the books, they protested, they emailed, they voted, they watched the news, they told their mom and dad, they did all the things, and it's still... Not great. What do you say to those people? Well, uh, first, I would say I count myself among you, so I understand. Um, but I would say two things. I think the first is that, you know, when you look around, there's no question that things are getting worse. I mean, just take this as an example. Male digitization was something that was in its infancy uh, five years ago, and it's really well established around the country now, and that's growing. Um so things are getting worse, but in other ways, things are also always getting better, right? So New York City pushed back against male digitization after lots of sustained effort. Um, there are many other states that have started to move towards free communication for people who are behind bars, which is a huge win um, and incredible kudos to the state advocates that are working on things like free phone calls. So I think you can find places where things are getting better just as much as you can find places where things are getting worse. And the second thing I would say is just that if you are kind of despairing of the outcomes, right, that you you don't see outcomes getting better, try to focus your hope and your faith in something else, right? So maybe that's just showing up for the people you love who are also doing the work. Maybe it's showing up because it makes you feel like a better person. It makes your perspective better. I think there are other things to focus on besides just whether or not things are moving in the direction you want them to be moving in. 
Boom. And the last question is, um, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten that you'll never forget? One really good piece of advice that I got was love the people you work with. I think it's very common to hear the advice, love what you do. But many years ago when I was starting my career, someone told me to focus on who you're working with as well. And I think this applies to, you know, like career work, but also to, you know, social justice work, work you do in your communities. It's really important to care about the work you do. It's like how I wake up in the morning, but I think it's just as important to care about the people that you're doing the work with, because no matter where you are, like things are going to get sticky. There are going to be moments that feel overwhelming or frustrating moments where, you know, you do lose hope, right? And you are um, thinking about things getting worse and despairing. And I think that if you're in a community with people you value, people you love, the hard times become so much more bearable. You can be more honest and vulnerable. You can take things in good faith and you find so much more resilience that way. So I would encourage people to think about what they do and who they do it with. Boom. How do people stay in touch with you? How do people make sure they will always know the next article you write or follow this issue? What do they do? Where do they go? Is it Twitter, Facebook? Is it a website? What's the what? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know what's happening with Twitter on a day-to-day basis. I mean, that's fair. I'm, I'm nervous about suggesting it, but Twitter is the best way to get in touch with me. My handle is at Stephanie Krent. Um, you can also go to the Knight Institute's website, which is knightcolumbia.org. Uh, and a lot of our advocacy work and, you know, our writings, including my writings on this topic, are housed there. Boom. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thanks so much, Dre. This was a great conversation. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pods of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Cricket Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.